Morning. So, this morning we are going to be reading from, well, we'll be reading from a couple of places. We're going to start in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. If you have your Bibles, you can open to Luke, chapter 10. We're going to be starting in verse 25. <clears throat> and uh, I was thinking about how I want to just sum everything up today in, in a title. Because somebody always asks me for a title for my sermon, so uh, it's like the way life should be. How many of you remember driving into Maine? If you drove into Maine on I-95, they used to say, have that sign that said, welcome to Maine, the way life should be. And then immediately they would hit you with a toll plaza and charge you money. So that always seemed a little ironic to me, but that's, that's kind of what I was thinking for today, is the way life should be. So the, the text here is probably going to be familiar to a lot of you. Probably, if you've grown up in the faith and gone over it many times uh, in Sunday school, it's what they call the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, it's interesting that we call it the Good Samaritan because Jesus just says a certain Samaritan. Um, we kind of go, look, this guy is good. And Jesus' point is, no, this is how everybody should be. So... Luke chapter 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes and beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by to the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil on, <coughs> pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, The one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. Fairly short passage. People handle it in a number of ways as, as a moral lesson. Uh, but I don't think that's exactly what's going on here. It, I mean, it, it definitely is a moral lesson, but it's not simply that. I will say that there are many layers to this story. It's my new catchphrase since I said I would no longer say there's a lot going on here. So there are many layers to this story. Now, if you were brought up in a tradition that reads the gospel or that presents the gospel as something like, you're going to hell, Jesus died so that you could go to heaven. This is going to read weird. It's going to read like works. It's going to read like, do this kind of thing so that you can go to heaven. 
But if you've been tracking with us, when we say that the gospel is bigger than that, um, the gospel is not you're going to hell. That's not the good news. The good news is the world is going to hell. That doesn't sound better. Let me rephrase that. We've, we've been tracking through the Bible talking about this story of God having a good creation. But through man's choices, that creation being subject to sin and death, and all of creation being cast into this, this bad state. And that when Jesus comes, he's coming not just to restore us to God, but Paul tells us in Colossians 1.20 that God was in Christ reconciling all things to himself. He is redeeming his whole creation. We can get this presentation that, that what the gospel about is us going to heaven when we die, and that's not at all. It's about God bringing new life to everything. Now, as we go through this, we have this, we just have this story where an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, a couple things. There's kind of a, a parallel account um, in, in Mark chapter 12. And, he, and in that account, it says that this man had seen Jesus debating the Pharisees and Sadducees, and he liked the answers Jesus was giving. So he decided to test Jesus, not as a way to trip him up, but just he was so impressed with how he had answered them that he wanted to question him more closely. And this question... What must I do to inherit eternal life, or what is the greatest commandment? That, that's actually a common question in rabbinical teaching at this time. But what's translated here as eternal life, to us that might, if you've got that gospel presentation of going to heaven in your mind, that might sound like, what must I do to live forever in heaven? But that's not actually what he's saying in the original there. He's saying, what must I have to do to be part of the life of the age to come? What must I do to be part of this messianic life, this life of God? Because for them, for the gospel, and for the New Testament authors, we have this notion that eternal life, the life of the kingdom, is both something we are going to enjoy and something that is breaking in now. So have that in mind when you get to what Jesus is saying, because Jesus is not saying, do this and you'll go to heaven. He's saying, this is what eternal life looks like. This is what the life of the kingdom looks like. And then he gets into the story. And he, he throws it back to him. He says, you know, how do you read the law? And, and the good answer there is, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul, with everything you have, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, you answer correctly. Do this and you live. If you do this, you will be participating in the life, the eternal life. Where it says he wanted to justify himself. Now that can sound like he, he was looking to, you know, make himself look good. But he, he wants to make it clear that he wasn't just asking an easy question that was of no Afraid. He really wanted to dig into it. So he says this thing. So who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied with the parable. 
a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. Most, <laughs> most Bible commentaries will tell you that this is a narrow, twisty road through the mountains with lots of places for, for bandits to hide. And it wouldn't be uncommon for somebody to be attacked on that road. That would be a, a good place that happened, especially at this time. There is a degree of lawlessness. There are people who are rebelling against the Roman government, which is occupying Israel at this time, um, and they're bandits. And to support themselves, some of them are robbing people. Um, some of them are only robbing rich people they see as, as kind of collaborating with the Romans. Maybe that's what's in mind here. Um, those are the zealots. One of Jesus' disciples is a zealot. But anyway, this man falls into the robbers. And uh, Jesus is very cagey here. Because he's the son of God. Of course he's wise. But anyway. But when he says it, like the first person he brings in is a priest who is supposed to be mediating between God and Israel like Israel is supposed to be mediating between God and the rest of the world. And the priest, he doesn't know if the person is dead or just sick, so he passes by because he doesn't want to touch a dead body because then he's originally unclean. He can't do his priestly duties. So he goes by. Next person who comes along is a Levite. Those are the people that serve in the temple. Again, he doesn't want to touch a corpse, and he can't do his duties. So these are people that are seeing the body, and what they're thinking of is, oh, I have a duty to God. I can't, I can't go answer to this need right now because I have this, this higher duty to God. That may seem like an odd attitude to you, but it is alive and well today. You will hear people say, you know, we can't, the church can't get distracted by, you know, the day-to-day -day evils of the world. It'll distract us from the gospel. It'll take away from the gospel. You will hear prominent preachers say that. The problem with that is, this is part of the gospel. If you read the Bible as a whole, if you read the prophets in the Old Testament when they talk about the Messianic coming, the signs of the coming are restored society, are the poor lifted up, is justice restored, it's inequality dealt with. That is part and parcel of the gospel. Now, some expressions of the church have kind of lost the train, and they focused so much on, yes, we want to restore justice, and they forgot the reason we want to restore justice is because that's God's ideal, because that's God's intention, because the people we're dealing with are the image of God. So... You don't want to lose God in, in the pursuit, but you definitely can't set aside caring for your brothers and sisters and say it's a distraction from the gospel. People still do that, but that's exactly what these people are going through. This is exactly what Jesus doesn't do. When lepers come to Jesus and ask to be healed, what does Jesus do? He touches them. Any good Jew knows you touch a leper, you're unclean. Jesus isn't worried about that. Jesus sees them. He sees the image of God in them, and he knows what God's heart is to them. So he doesn't care if he makes himself richly unclean to bring them wholeness. So then we get this Samaritan. And uh, the Samaritans are bad guys. They're the out crowd. In the history of Israel, 
after Solomon died, uh, his son kind of ruled harshly, and, and the, the northern tribes of Israel all rebelled against him, and they decided to have their own king. And so Solomon's son had just Judah and the tribe of Benjamin in the south as the kingdom of Judah, and you had this the kingdom of Israel going its own way, and their capital was at Samaria. And they very quickly kind of got off track. One reason was they didn't want everybody going down to Jerusalem to worship God there because it's in the other kingdom. So they had their own temple at Samaria, and then they started mixing with the beliefs of the tribes around them and bringing that in, and God sent prophets to, to call them back to God, and but they finally, they wandered away so badly that finally God allowed Assyria to overthrow them and take them off into captivity. They took those tribes away and they moved other people in. That's what a lot of empires used to do. You displace the people you conquered so they wouldn't have a power base to rebel against you. You move somebody else in. But there's this little story that when they moved the new people in, all of a sudden lions started coming out and eating everybody. And uh, they, they like, what, what's going on? And they thought, oh, we don't know how to worship the God of this land. They had this view that each place had its own God. So they brought some of these priests of the northern kingdom back to instruct the people in how to worship the God of this land to appease him so the lions would quit eating people. So that, that's the roots of the nation of, his, uh, of the, the Samaritan people. They're, first they rebel against uh, God and against Judah. And then they're mixed with other people from somewhere else, and, and they're just, to, the, to any good law-abiding Jew, they are, they are the out crowd. Well, I talked, when I talked about the Sermon on the Mount uh, two weeks ago, I talked about how God is very concerned that we don't represent people with labels so that we can make them other than us. Jesus is giving a really good example of somebody that should be an other here and showing, no, they're not. They're a neighbor. They are relating to people the way God would have them relate. So he has this Samaritan. This is, depending on your, depending on your viewpoint, this, this guy is worse than a liberal snowflake or a fascist conservative. Pick your desired outgroup. Um, he's, he's that outgroup, but, but he is the one who's going to take pity on this man. He's going to take him and he's going to see to his needs. He bandages him. He pours oil and wine on his wounds. Then he puts the man on his own donkey. And he takes him to the inn. And it says he cared for him there. And then not only that, but he gave his money to see to his further care. And he said, if there's anything extra when I come back through here, I'll, I'll take care of it. And Jesus finishes with, which one of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Well, this is interesting, because he asked, who is my neighbor? Looking to kind of limit the scope of what his duty was to figure out, okay, who am I responsible for? And Jesus tells him how to go out and be a neighbor. It's like, no, 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 you don't understand you're not looking to see who you have a duty to. You have a duty to everybody. Go out and be a neighbor. It's one of the kind of core concepts that you'll catch on to as you read through the Bible is we are not our own. Paul says we're slaves to Christ. Now that's, that's 
kind of harsh language, but we were created by God, not just for ourselves, but for God and for each other. One of the first aspects of the fall was to break that fellowship, not just with God, but with each other. Before God even shows up and Adam hides, he's already put on a fig leaf to cover his nakedness from his wife. And she's done the same thing. The first effect of the fall was to put mistrust between people. When they're cast out of the garden, one of the next things that happens is you get the first murder. And we're told in the opening chapters of Genesis that the earth becomes so violent and so full of murder that that's why God had brings the flood of Noah. So one of the key consequences of the fall that damages creation is it damages our relations with each other. It makes it so we have to hide from each other, so we don't care for each other, so we don't look at our brothers and sisters and see them in them, the reflection of God, and because the reflection of God, the reflection of ourselves, we see them as something other. But the cross takes care of that. God was in Christ reconciling all things to himself, and since all things are reconciled to himself, they're also reconciled to each other. We have the, in the shape of a cross, you get a really good illustration of this. You have a vertical element. We are reconciled to God, but you have a horizontal cross, piece to the cross. We're reconciled to each other. There is now no slave or free, no barbarian or Greek, no male or female in Christ. Those things that separate us shouldn't separate us anymore. They've been dealt with. So go and do likewise. I'm going to go read another story, another parable. Well, actually, this one's not a parable. This is actually an account of one of the things Jesus did. And it may look like it doesn't have much of a relationship, but we're going we're to get to that. And this is in Matthew chapter 19, and uh, sometimes called the rich young ruler. Then a man came up to Jesus and said, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? And again, we hear eternal life, and if we're thinking in that old school gospel presentation, what do I do to go to heaven? And it can sound like works, but it's not. Jesus is telling him what it's like to be part of the kingdom, to be part of that new creation. Why do you ask me what is good, Jesus replied. There's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. <coughs> Notice he's given different, kind of different list here than in the other story. All of these I've kept, says the young man. What do I still lack? If you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, and give to the poor. You will have treasures in heaven, then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and said, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And that looks like it's a different dealing with different things. But again, Jesus is just addressing the same thing with slightly different uh, picture. He's saying, what you have 
Use it for the people around you. What is in your life, give it to bring other people up. All of us have a gift from God for the rest of the world around us. If you are breathing, you have a call of God on your life. If you are young, if you are old, if you are poor or you are rich, you have something, even if it's just a kind word, that you can offer to the people around you. You all have a commission from God. We all belong to each other, and that's why we're here. There's, I, I you know, as a kid, and uh, well, as a kid, and I'm still a kid, so um, I enjoy, I love enjoying documentaries. I used to love, you know, the National Geographic documentaries when I was growing up. Um, now, some documentaries I don't enjoy as much, like whenever I see something on the History Channel, I want to throw the remote at the TV. <laughs> it's like, you guys have no idea what history means. I'm like, bonk. But I still love watching like nature documentaries. And um, something interesting, if you look at like Africa, and I, boy, when I was a kid, I always wanted to go to Africa. There was a, a, you know, a period of my life where I wanted to like grow up and just go on safari what I wanted to be an elephant hunter, which is kind of a weird weird thing to want to be. But, you know, hey, when you're 12. But so I still love seeing that kind of thing. And you see some interesting dynamics when you see wildlife on the plains of Africa. You know, you have things that graze and things that eat the things that graze. And you would think that the things that get eaten by the, the lions and the... the hyenas and stuff, would, would be perpetually scared and running away, but they really couldn't live if they were always running away. So they've kind of got this sense. So if you have lions, a bunch of lions, charging like a herd of zebra, uh, a pride of lions, uh, hunting a herd of zebra, those zebras will all run until the lions get a zebra. And then they're like, oh, they got one, we're good. Better, better that zebra than me. That's, that's zebras. We're not zebras. We're not supposed to be like that. We're not supposed to go, oh, okay, they got one. I'm safe now. We're not zebras. We're made in the image of God. We have a difference from the rest of creation. But there is this thing called the bystander effect that we are subject to. And it's this interesting effect that if you have like a crowd of people and something bad happens in front of them, the more people are there, the less likely anybody is to do anything. Uh, in 2011, there was this really, really sad story. Uh, it took place in Alameda, California. There was this 53-year-old uh, man who I believe was had some diminished capacity. The name was Raymond. And uh, his, his uh, stepmom said he, was, was trying to kill himself, but he, he waited 150 yards out into the ocean, and this is in May, so it's very cold, and he was standing there. And there were a crowd of people looking on, and the police and the fire department showed up. And the police said, ooh, this is a job for the firemen. And the firemen looked, and they said, oh, we don't have the right training to do this. Let's call the Coast Guard. And 
and they called the Coast Guard, and the Coast Guard ship was couldn't get in that shallow, so they couldn't do anything. There were bystanders on the beach that said, okay, this is silly, and started taking off their shoes to go, and the police said, no, 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 let the professionals handle this, and held them back. And nobody did anything. And he finally succumbed to hypothermia, and fell face down in the ocean, and still nobody did anything. Then finally, his, the waves pushed him closer to shore, and finally a woman just said enough and went in and pulled him out. Um, but but he, it was too late. He, he died. Um, the interesting thing is the courts, when this case came to court, said, well, you know what? It's not really the job of, of firemen to rescue people. It's great if they do, but they don't have to really strange. But out of this whole thing, that you've got this situation where there were all these people and, and nobody wanted to be the one to do something. And sometimes it's daunting because sometimes we don't know what to do. Sometimes we have no idea. There's a situation, you see somebody has a need and you have no idea how to meet it. We're still the children of God, and sometimes if the best thing you can do is go stand next to somebody in the pouring rain, go and stand next to somebody in the pouring rain. Now, my next sermon illustration I don't really like to use, because it's a really good illustration of this, and, and I'm the priest and the Pharisee in this one. It was a long, long time ago, back home, and um, it was a rainy night, and I was, I was driving back home, and uh, there was a car broken down on the side of the road. There was a, a guy standing there in the rain working on his car, and there was a lot of traffic, and, and I, I came up to the light right next to the guy, and I rolled down my window to see if it was okay. It was one of my friends. It was somebody I knew, and I'm like, oh, Okay. And then the light changed, and I'm like, oh, I don't know what to do here. Um, I don't know how to fix cars. I don't know what to do. You know, people are honking, so I, like, keep going on, and I'm, like, trying to turn around and get back there, and finally I'm like, okay, there's a lot of traffic. Somebody will stop and help them. Nobody stopped and helped them. Um, you know, I, at the time, I was very young. I was prone to anxiety. I pretty much almost panicked. But, um, yeah, I, I just, I did not meet that guy's need. I failed uh, to be a brother to him. I failed to see myself in him and, and answer that need. And that can happen to all of us. It's really embarrassing because now he is a pastor back home. Uh, in, in the church I used to be part of, um, but it happens to all of us. But that's one of the reasons we're here. It can be tempting. I, I see people who are who are sincere believers who, who think, well, my life is mine. I, me and God are good. You know, I've got a situation in my life or whatever, but I, I, I'm not worried about it. I'm not going to take care of it because I know where I'm going when I, I pass. Fine. If there's nothing you can do about your situation, it is good to have that peace. But if you could do something and you're just like, well, 
my life belongs to me, and I... Uh-uh! We're here for each other. We are God's gift to each other. We are, we are God's means of grace to each other many times. Our lives are not our own. We are slaves for Christ. We are there for the people broken down on the side of the road. We're there for the people who are hurting, who we have no idea how to help. And trust me, if you ever, you know, some of your parents you know, um, if you're ever in ministry, you will often be confronted by situations that you have no idea what to do. And all you can offer is your presence but your presence is immensely powerful. When I first became a, a Christian, one of the things that really ministered to me was music. I always loved music. That's why I take my wife to concerts all the time. Music just touches me. And um, there was a songwriter I really like, who I, I quote a lot because he's just, uh, his, his lyrics have shaped my theology. Um, God has mediated the word to me through him many times. And, uh, but he has this great song called A Kind Word. And um, the, the gist of the song is, this is this is a dark world, and I just want to make sure that if I cross your path, you've heard a kind word. I don't know what else is going to happen to you today, but I want to make sure you've heard a kind word. Well, if we believe that Jesus was the Son of God, and if we believe that on the cross... Jesus reconciled us to God and reconciled us to each other. If we are part of that, then we have at least a kind word to offer to people around us. And it's not that, that that we inherit eternal life, that we go to heaven because we do that. It's because we know that we're already part of that kingdom, that we've been redeemed into that kingdom, that we've been made part of that promise, that we can do that should do that. And that is part of the gospel. If you see somebody hurting and you can do something, do it. That's part of the gospel. It's not a distraction from the gospel. If you see somebody being ignored, if you see somebody being labeled because people think they're a dork, if they really are a dork especially, befriend that person, love them, because that is the image of God, and that is one of the primary ways we see God in the world, we see God in each other. And sometimes it's those most, most challenging situations, those most challenging people, to be honest, that shape us more into the character of Christ. We can shape them into the character. And that's, after all, the mark of how we'll be known as believers. You know, we get, the Bible talks about, you know, trees by their fruit, and it never, ever, ever says fruit is numbers. It never, ever says fruit is looking cool, looking good. You know, you always see, Jesus always looks really good in paintings <coughs> and stuff, and you always see him, he's kind of good-looking guy, handsome guy. Bible says he had no beauty to attract us to him. But what we do see 
what was attractional about him was his character, and what we're supposed to be manifesting his character. We're supposed to be patient, long-suffering, and kind, and gentle. The Word says that's how people are going to know that we're his followers, if we love, if we love each other. So that's the way life should be, whether you're in Maine or not. 